30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Happy New Year, if you're listening to this now. Or Happy Old Year, if you're listening to this later. In either case, I'm your wizard, Devin Person. The year, at the time of this recording, is 2021, and the world is still a very weird place to be. Which is a weird thing to say, because when in the history of reality has existence ever made sense? Reality itself is just weird. It always has been, it always will be, and that's why the world needs wizards. When I first decided that what I was going to do with my time on Earth was grow out my beard, put on a pointed cap, and embody a fictional archetype, I knew I couldn't be the first person to come up with that idea. I did my due diligence, I did some Google searches, I looked around, and I swear to you, I couldn't find any evidence of other wizards. But then a few months after I did my ritual to become a wizard, suddenly they started popping up leading me to wonder, had these wizards always existed in my world? Or had I moved to a new reality where they had always been there? We've talked to quite a few of the other wizards on this podcast so far. We've met with Oberon Zell, who bred unicorns, the lovely wizards who ran the wizard shop in Richmond, one of my favorite non-stores to ever exist. And I have for a very long time wanted to make contact and connection with some wizards that live on the other side of the world, down in that lovely land of the Shire called New Zealand. It was several years ago, while I was out on the town in Puerto Rico, when I got a message on my Facebook account from Ari Freeman, the deputy wizard of New Zealand, saying they'd heard about me and my work, and they were very interested and wanted to have a chat. So Ari, myself, and the Wizard of New Zealand, who his friends call him Jack, but the official title is The Wizard of New Zealand, got on a call, got to know each other, and were delighted to discover the ways in which our wizardry aligned and also differed. Now, one of the sayings that the wizards down in New Zealand have, since there's more than a few of them, is that a group of wizards is called a disagreement. And I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about wizardry. It's not defined It's not regimented. There's not a place that you can get your official card that says you're a a wizard and a member of some international organization. And each of us has been drawn to the pointed cap and long beard in our own unique way. Some of it's even doing without beards altogether as the wizard archetype continues to evolve. But every wizard is alike in one key way, which is a lifelong obsession with wondering about why the world wags and what wags it. Ari Freeman was asking this question and experimenting with performance and magic, ritual, and belief before he ever became the apprentice of the Wizard of New Zealand and has continued through debate, public performance, and various magic and writing to ask those questions. 
I'm thrilled to be speaking with Ari today about his unique perspective on magic and reality and wizardry at large. And then next week, we'll be back with the Wizard of New Zealand himself for an extended conversation. So let's get into the wide world of 21st century wizardry as we sit down to chat with the one, the only, Ari Freeman. Greetings, Ari. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you very much. This, I feel like, is an epic moment in wizard history to come. This, is, this, is, this feels very monumentous to me. Awesome. I, I think we're both sort of the, uh, the new vanguard of wizardry in the 21st century, and so I'm so delighted to have you here and to, to really chat wizard to wizard. Thank you very much. Yes, I feel it's um, been a long time coming, and I feel that we've both been doing our own thing independently touched base and had quite a reasonable effect on each other and yet haven't quite had this conversation yet. I mean, we're on opposite sides of the world, so I don't know if it's like gravity that is is pulling us together, but there's certainly been an energy that has caused us to be in rotation together. I think so. And I'm also surprised at how much we've already uh, connected through our work. Yeah, absolutely. We were just re- reflecting before the show started about um, I was like traveling in Puerto Rico and I think it was Halloween night and I was out with friends and I looked down at my phone and I got a message from you and I, I was just so excited because I was aware of you and the uh, the Wizard of New Zealand and yeah. the whole community down there. And then suddenly we had made contact and it was uh, very exciting. And then you've introduced me to Oberon and Wayne and the Wizard Shop of Richmond and a bunch That's of the right. other yeah, wizards. So. Exactly. Yeah. Which is uh, interesting because I've never met either of them. <laughs> but I just, I'm your uh, American proxy, but uh, yeah. together we're weaving webs of wizardry. So, well, I'm kind of, I'm sometimes, I'm quite well known around my city. And recently I've been interviewed quite a lot, including internationally with the old, old wizard, our official wizard of New Zealand. Uh, but I, I'm quite happy to orchestrate things. I don't have to be the forefront, so I'm quite happy to orchestrate things behind the scenes. And when I see someone doing something that uh, I see as good work, I, I'm quite happy to help them do it. So I saw you were already doing some of the things that um, I was maybe planning to do uh, in a year's time or something. And I'm like, oh, well, he's already doing it. So I'll send Wayne and Ober on his way and see if I can orchestrate that. I'm always uh, tickled when that comes together and some work comes out of it. Like your interview with Oberon allowed me to learn much more about Oberon uh, in a way that was harder to achieve by just through email or something. Well, hopefully Oberon's listening to this interview and gets to learn more about you. So I'll, yeah. I'll be sure to, <laughs> there we to go. send an owl to him with a, a cassette tape containing this recording. There we go. Yeah. Well, let's make it official and and get fully into our magical connection spanning time and space with the audience of of listeners, which I think will include, you know, all of the uh, graduate students writing their paper on <laughs> 21st century wizardry, having to refer back to this uh, this document. So what's our magic word going to be? Um, charm. Charm. Oh, my God. What a great word. Okay. On the count of three, one, two, three. Charm. Charm. Why charm? I believe if you 
want to understand magic as a 21st century person, charm's probably the best keyword to get you started. Um, one thing I, there's a few things that we do in the 21st century that are almost undeniably magic. One I would say is advertising. So I've got this story about, um, I'm writing a book and a blog, uh, it's called Pragmatic Magical Thinking. Mm-hmm. So um, some of this will be up on my blog. If you look up Pragmatic Magical Thinking, you'll find some of these ideas. But the book is trying to explain magic to 21st century people, including skeptics and scientists and even religious people. And I'm trying to use I'm trying to use rationality to explain why how the world is not rational in a sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't tell if that's a rational or irrational exercise in and of itself. It's but a fun I, exercise, I, yeah. It's pure, pure wizardry for sure. Okay, so here's a here's a little story that explains um, how advertising works. Um, I was driving down a Rickerton Road, which is sort of a busy road with some shopping malls on it and a lot of um, dairies and things, and I suddenly felt like a Coca Cola. Now, that might not seem unusual, but I hadn't bought a coca-cola in maybe 15 years like i'd made a conscious decision not not to buy um what you guys would call soda what would you call it a fizzy (laughs) fizzy drink oh my god that's amazing because there's there's a debate in america because some people call it pop some people call it soda some states will just call it a coke regardless of what what kind of soda it is yeah a fizzy is 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 great (laughs) it's it's very british term but we're um we descendants of a British colony. Yeah. So. Uh, so I was driving around and suddenly I just desired a Coca-Cola. And I'm like, what? That's a, it felt like a spirit was saying it in my head. It felt like an alien voice. Now, Drink if I, Coke. Exactly. Now, if I was someone more inclined to sugary drinks, then I might um, have felt it was my own voice. It definitely sounded like my own voice, but somehow wrong. So I was driving along like, why would I desire a Coke? I'm just not that interested in Coke. And then I passed another Coca-Cola sign. So I saw the Coca-Cola signs. I was driving down the road and I must have passed four or five dairies, what you'd call a convenience store, with, mm. the, with the Coca-Cola sign out front. Now, the thing that interested me is that it didn't present itself as a conscious visual it presented itself as pure desire. And that is one of the ways that magic functions in the 21st century. And that is charm. The advertising- It's a symbol and an idea that's fully loaded that even just the word conjures memories and all these other associations, which then manifests itself in your psyche as seemingly organic desire of, ah. Just pure desire, yeah. And you think it's yours. You think it's your desire. And that's the yeah. trick, which is simultaneously charm, demonology, and sigil magic. Yeah, my favorite uh, my favorite quote about advertising, I forget who said it, but it was something about marketing and, uh, you know, this guy saying, I spend, you know, millions of dollars on this stuff um, and only half of it works. The problem is I don't know which half. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's the same. Now, I'm a musician mm-hmm. and... At the point I figured out that what I'm really trying to do is charm an audience, I stopped having bad gigs. Before then, maybe half my gigs were 
fantastic. And about half of them, I wasn't sure why the audience wasn't responding the way I'd like. And it, it's occurred to me since that when you play uh, music for people, especially I usually play people uh, music to, to try and get people to dance, it's not so much that you're playing sound. In fact, music is not sound. Music is an experience you're trying to create in people's head using the medium of sound. But people don't hear the sound. They, they have the experience, which means that the particularities of which notes you play or didn't mean to play or uh, whether you went into a section of a song early or not do not get picked up by the audience unless you make it um unless you visually show it to them unless you go oh my god so um it's very much charming people and they think that they chose to dance and in in fact it's the magician slash musician who willed them to dance so that's another form of charm but uh, benevolent charm well, I th- and I think the other thing that's so interesting about it is the group activity of dancing depends on so many factors. Mm. If you have the same music in a large room with bright lights, fewer people are going to dance, I think, than if you have that same music in a darker room that feels more cozy and comfortable and private. And there's so many other factors. So often I think the the role of a wizard or a musician in these situations is helping people understand that there is no spectator. That if you are in this yeah. concert, you are a participant in this, like we talk about in this ritual, you are a participant in this ritual by listening to it and interacting with it. And if you decide to dance and go wild and be goofy, or you decide to cross your arms and look at your phone and scowl, yeah. you're going to affect the reality of everybody else sharing that space with you. And that makes the difference between what an amazing night. We all danced for hours and lost our minds versus uh, that show just didn't, I don't know if it was kind of boring. Absolutely. So the, um, the venue, the, the music, um, the visuals, who turns up, what they're wearing, all of these things are the context that makes a musical performance work. So, a while ago, uh, there was sort of this short-lived meme where they got a uh, concert violinist playing a Stradivarius violin, a 300-year-old violin, and they mm-hmm. had him perform in the subway. And most people walked past, and they videoed this. And I think they were trying to run it as a scientific experiment, though obviously not a highly scientific one. And they were surprised in this article that they wrote about that people just walked past the violinist. And as a musician, as a performing musician, that didn't surprise me one bit because the way you should properly present a Stradivarius concert violinist is that you advertise it. Some people who are interested go along. They dress up in fine clothes. They might even go out for dinner beforehand with their partner or their friend. And then they go into. They go to this amazing town hall with amazing acoustics. They walk through the door. There's a liminal space in the lobby. They're handed a pamphlet. And on the pamphlet are all the the guy's credentials about why he's qualified to play a 300-year-old violin and how amazing the violin is. By the time they sit down in this auditorium designed for music, they are already going, I can't wait, I can't wait. And they already clap the guy and almost give him a standing ovation just for turning up that's 
the spell started with the ad. <laughs> by the time they're sitting in there, like half the performance has already finished by the time the concert starts. So to do it in the New York subway station, which is a place primed for people to be busy and traveling somewhere. Then Australia Fire's violin concert violinist won't cut it. But what does cut it is someone doing com- something completely novel that boggles the mind. Um, that is so mind-boggling that you'll be willing to be late for work. For instance, someone playing, uh, you know, jungle on a on a harpsichord or um, a hurdy-gurdy rap song. Or something yep. like highly novel, they go, whoa, what's that? Okay, I'll be 10 to 15 minutes late for work to watch this. Um, it's your- immediate. And it's like, you, you, yeah, I think that's the the idea of novelty yeah. versus the sort of refined arts where if, if someone was serving you samples of, you know, something from a five-star restaurant, but it was in little paper cups and they were in the mall food court just handing it out, I don't think people would be blown away by it which is why when you go to a fancy restaurant, your waiter is a showman and a performer and tells you in detail what you're about to eat and how it was prepared and how delicious it's going to be and where your tongue should be in your mouth as you take the bite and all of these other things that I think are designed to charm you into the idea of I'm having a great experience. So that's charm. And it's uh, deeply tied into the same things that we call the um, placebo effect. And it's related to um, hypnosis as well. You're speaking my language, which is uh, not surprising considering I think for for people who are drawn to wizardry, which I want to talk about how you got drawn to it, Mm. um, one of the most amazing things has been seeing how I spent a lot of time just deep in thought thinking about the world and magic and what these things meant to me and then sort of found the wizard as an archetype that Mm. brought them to life. And despite what I think a lot of people assume, it's not necessarily fully aligned with the occult. That's a, that's a part of it, but a lot of the people who are more traditionalist occultists, I think it's a different energy and a different attitude than wizardry. Mm. And when you and I first started chatting, I was like, ah, here's somebody who uh, sees the world in a similar way. So I'm, I'm curious if you could spell out your, your journey of how you got drawn into wizardry, especially with... Mm. Uh, meeting the Wizard of New Zealand and becoming an apprentice. Yeah, well, it started um, by myself, but the Wizard of New Zealand gave me the opportunity to to take it public in a way that I wasn't doing as much by myself. So, yeah, exactly like you said, uh, thinking about, well, basically, it comes down to this. We all descend from people who um, not only believed in magic, but use magic magic pragmatically every day. Mm-hmm. Like there were no cultures without some form of magic. And this was because the we're so used to this post-enlightenment kind of worldview and this concept of objectivity and statistics and maths and all of this, but people didn't have access to that. In the old days... The world was the world as experienced, not the world somehow outside human experience. Mm-hmm. Now, because of this detachment, this um, ideology that came in with the Enlightenment, and don't get me wrong, the Enlightenment did many amazing things, but it also cut us off from our, our roots, especially as Westerners, is that in trying to be objective, they looked at what people had done in the past and largely saw largely presented that as delusion, delusional. 
which I don't think it is at all. I think some forms, I think there are delusional forms of magic, but I think many, I think we still do magic. We've just cut ourselves off from the label. So I was interested in trying to address the problem of why, um, especially, especially Western people, especially people who are descended from, from people who run, who ran the colonies, right? Mm-hmm. From em- people who ran the empires, or um, is that we've been detached from our past in such a way that ha- has de- uh, removed us from from a, a sense of meaning, and I think this is why we see around us a, a meaning crisis in twenty twenty. This kind of you get people trying to form superficial tribes based on the way they look or some identity label they've attached to themselves but well, not what sports team you follow i mean yeah there, or there's, there's so many of these artificial mythologies that we're yeah. desperately trying to invest ourselves into rather than um a heritage a culture a a genetic lineage a um yeah the people you all the people you interacted um a narrative and uh, the well, other I thing think- that a comprehensive story. I think a lot of the yeah, myths benefited by saying, this is a story that applies to you specifically. We live in a desert. This story is about desert gods and desert people yeah. and surviving here. And I think with one of the issues that you have with Christianity is that it's hard sometimes to fully connect with a story that's set in a time and place that's so removed. Exactly. Um, it's that removal. It's that removal from being embedded in the world and world history and also the the idea of trying to present objective information by the way objectivity is not something we ever achieve not even in science it's mm-hmm. only an ideal to approach it's never something you arrive at you are always a human being filtering the human filtering the world f- through human experience so i my I guess my one I've got a couple of missions as a wizard. One is to help explain to people how to reattach themselves in this way, how to talk to people who at first they think um might experience the world in a thoroughly different way, and how to address some of this meaning crisis through magic, and the other thing is just this despondency that we have seen through uh first in the 20th century and then in the 20 21st century the idea of feeling stuck the idea that you're trapped i uh, i suggest you're not trapped you can get away with much more than you think it's a very tricky thing because we're sort of stuck in uh these very individualistic bubbles and a lot of Mm. self-help and new age stuff, I think goes really hard on that, that if you're not, if you're not making six figures, that's because you don't want money and you're not manifesting it. And it's very individual Mm. focused and ignores the power of the collective. And then we are part of this large collective that we really struggle to see and experience. I think that's why we see so much devolving into tribalism right now is because we don't have uh, a mythology that brings us all together and rituals that help us see all the different people in our community as being vital rather than, Oh, it would be so great if we could just get rid of X population and only keep Y population. And then of course the flip side on the other side. 
which is very, very bad for people. It's very, very bad for you to live in a world that's only filled with people who agree with you because I'm sorry, we're all wrong. You're wrong and it requires this tension and a little bit of stress in your life and a little bit of interaction and some arguments to find out not not only what someone else thinks, but what you think. Mm -hmm. If you don't argue, how do you know what you think? It's This kind of social tension has always been through human history and it's good for you. And it's not good for you to live in a situation whereby one dismisses or blocks people who they disagree with. And I guess that's what I'm trying to achieve. I think the world would be a much more fun, interesting, more hopeful place if we had less dismissal and um, more engagement and more a genuine, genuine conversation where you actually allow someone into your head. Mm-hmm. and um, and vice versa, where you actually try and convince something. So I think, yeah, that's a mission. And I think uh, magic is the perfect place to do that because people are convinced that it's, um, well, that, that, that it doesn't work. Like one of the definitions of magic that I um, think a lot of people believe is that magic is somehow the futile belief in impossible things. Mm, magical thinking yeah which depends by definition it's never going to work get off the ground in the first place which i would describe it as um the ability to manipulate perception in accordance with the will which makes music art uh sculpture all, all good art um acting advertising hypnosis all of these things become then real magic and i think our ancestors would have looked at this almost across the board regardless of what culture you come from as real magic that has real pragmatic effects well it's it's i i wonder what the perspective would be from from our ancestors on us now because it does feel like to a large extent i'm going to use a weird analogy but like diet if our culture had decided that we no longer needed to eat fat and like protein and carbs were the only thing that we're going to eat Mm. everyone would be dying slowly of malnutrition and i think we've cut out some very vital elements of the human diet um, in terms of the mythology and magic and connection that you're talking about and it's funny that I, I don't want to make it out to be the the boogeyman of, you know, the, the evil materialist scientist in a lab coat who scoffs at everything, because I think it's often more complex no, than that. No, because science is moving, there's many sciences that are moving beyond materialism, I think, yeah, in a very exactly. interesting way. Yeah, And have, you know, I think a lot of physicists have a very profound sense of awe and are not just, um, you know, Cartesian dualists. Oh, I think all scientists are there for some very highly emotional reasons, because they find... Um, uncovering i mean science has only one moral the moral is it's good to find stuff out it's it's morally better to find stuff out more stuff knowing more stuff is better than knowing less stuff which is which sounds like a given in our modern world but that's not the way people necessarily thought through history no not at all i think that that's the the trade-off that we have and i think that's the you know the flip side of what we've been praising is that uh, for all of the good that a, a, a compelling mythology gave a society, it also created strong taboos around certain things. Mm, yeah, and, right. and I think that's the the very interesting thing that we have to kind of tease out is every culture builds up its own religions, myths, and magical practices. And some of them are 
incredibly clever. And this prohibition on food or the reason why we prepare this thing in a certain way is because there's deep knowledge that the participants don't have full conscious access to, Mm. but they're still doing it right. Like we're going to make the potion in this way. And that's an ingenious way of extracting the psychedelic from the plant. But along with that, there's all kinds of nonsense that gets, uh, you know, it's like a typo that gets then printed with every oh, edition okay. of the book and gets worse. So, well, it can be. So I, I, to answer the question you hinted at before, what would someone in the past think of people in the 21st century? I think they'd look at us and go, you're all magicians. Yes. <laughs> right? And then they'd be thoroughly confused when we say, oh, no, not magic. No, no, we don't do any magic. It's like, what do you mean? You're currently talking to someone on the other side of the world with a disembodied voice sending your um, thoughts and intentions through some sort of wire. It gets there um, instantly. Like, that's that, that's just magic. I mean, through rocks and glass, basically. Like, rocks and glass yeah, and yeah. vibrating air. <laughs> so one thing I... Um, when people think that they don't... Um, so one thing I've been trying to explain recently is how spirits work in the modern world. Mm. And... Uh, so first thing to get is belief. Um, just quickly, people have this weird idea that they what they think in their heads are their beliefs. And I don't think that's true. I think if you really want to know what someone believes, watch the way they behave in the world. Those are the important beliefs. The things that people say, pe- people frequently, and we see this more and more and more, especially with... Um, online personas and that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. social media, is people say something as if they believe it to be true and then they act in the world completely differently. And this is why your very, very polite, wonderful friend who's lovely in real life goes on an absolute um, intense tirade with swear words and insults against someone who voted for a different (laughs) different thing than they voted for. Because what comes out on the um, online persona is the beliefs in their head, the things they think they should pay lip service to. But in the actual world, people uh, often do something differently. So if we look at what people actually do in the world, that's that's our, our beliefs. It's almost like conscious unconscious. Like we have yeah. all of these unconscious systems that are, are keeping us going. Yeah. And our conscious understanding is, is often different, which is where I think even just as a regular person, you run into um, that disconnect where you're like, ah, I believe in the value of hard work and productivity and then spend all day relaxing and then feel guilty because there's a conflict between your conscious desire and your unconscious desire. Great. That gets into something else. I'll just quickly finish the other thought and then we'll get into that. The, um, so I, I argue that in several ways, people, in the modern world say they don't believe in spirits for instance and yet they act as if they do and one example i'd put is it's it's a frosty morning and you get into your car and it won't start so instead of thinking thoroughly rationally about how to solve your problem you have a short emotional moment where you swear at your car and thump on the um, steering wheel damn you car as if the car can be insulted by your words, as if it's a spirit that you can offend for not obeying your will. That, that's inherently wired into a human being that we talk 
that we, we try and punish things that hurt us. You kick a rock mm-hmm. and like it hurts your toes, so you pick it up and hit it. You see children do it. That that's belief. That's an animist way to behave. This idea that you that firstly that the rock meant to offend you by stubbing your toes, or the car meant to offend it's you. It's been by lying not there waiting for you to come <laughs> yeah. along for millennia. Not yeah, exactly, and not just that, but that you can offend it back mm-hmm. as, if, as if there's a spirit in the rock or the car so we still yeah now you're 35 feet away rock let's let's yeah. see how long it takes you to get back to this prime <laughs> spot that you had yeah so that's what i meant if you actually look the way that that people behave it's not very different to our ancestors who built up animist belief systems or or believed in polytheistic halls of gods and this sort of thing it's not that different and yet we we excuse these parts of our life as if they, they're not there. Yeah, we like to deny them and, you know, scoff that that was just a moment of being silly rather than mm. acknowledging uh, how much easier I think it is to deal with things when we understand that we have an emotional basis towards them. And, uh, you know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I think like I have like a favorite cup of, of the various yeah, cups yeah, yeah. that I have in my house. And yeah. uh, there are certain beverages that it feels weird to not put them in that cup because it's just so much nicer. And uh, you can you can just take that and run with it to the point where you elaborate incredible ceremonies that are very precise and specific. Oh, yeah, we do. We can't help it. So what, yeah. as a hypnotist, you might be interested in this. What's crazier is the swearing at the car and thumping on the dashboard actually works. Mm-hmm. Now it doesn't make the car work, but it does make you feel better. It's been scientifically yeah. shown. They um, so if you plunge someone's hand into ice cold water, it's a you know you'll cause them pain but not damage. So it's a good, <laughs> slightly humane way to test someone's pain effects. If you um, f- tell them they have to be completely silent until they pull their hand out. Uh, they'll be able to hold their hand in for a number of seconds. If you tell them they can swear their head off and like uh, and and just say the most filthy things, they'll be able to hold their hand in for way longer. It turns out that swearing and curse words have an analgesic, painkilling uh, effect. That's fascinating. I wonder. I wonder how that that translates. Like, I'm just thinking of all the variations of if you're using curse words that aren't in the language that you speak natively, um, are more profane curse words more effective? So if I have to say the "son of a gun" and "heck" versus no, like "motherfucking no, piece of shit," it's got like, to be the it's got to be meaningful, I think, and it's got to be the filthiest thing you can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I I feel like we've lost. Uh, it's it's going to be a pile of threads, and hopefully somewhere in there it looks like a quilt at the end. Mm-hmm. But um, I I, I want to draw back this original thread about you and your own path. Um, oh, sorry, the, yes, yeah. the, the personal biography of how you came to uh to be a a pointy hatted wearing man about town. Well, there's the examples, and it's the connection towards people in the past. So I was interested in. Why as a society now we feel detached from the past? And not only detached from the past, but detached from each other, which mm-hmm. is something else I've also discussed with. I think the, I think the word, if you said, uh, what is our magic word? Charm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good way to get into magic in the 21st century. But I think if I could think of the opposite of that, the the word that's causing some of the most damage, it would be the term dismissal. Mm. So um, I, I guess I went through um, a journey with... Um, with religion and with spirituality and these sorts of things. And over and over again, I found either people being true heartfelt believers to the point where they might cut out a whole lot of evidence to the contrary, so delusion, or um, people like so skeptical that, or thinking they're very skeptical, but actually just dismissing. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, how can one be a fantastic good skeptic take the good things of skepticism which is the removal of gullibility and this sort of thing and without being dismissive and uh so i think from music you just got to try things out like like i think we had this conversation maybe it was before you started recording but oh the advertisers that you don't um that the guy only only knows half of what works but not which half right Mm -hmm. it's that you got to try things out in the world and uh to know whether they work or not you don't have to be able to explain them to know they work this is the magic difference between a magical um, viewpoint and a scientific one science would like to build a model of reality that a map that shows you why something works whereas magic just says well i do this and this works and this is my narrative, and my narrative might be entirely bullshit, but it, but when I do this, this works. So it's good enough for now. So, yeah, it's that um, aspect of trying to remove dismissal. So one way I can do that is dress as a wizard, walk around town having conversations with people that are ostensibly uh, philosophy, um, philosophy, religion, politics, all sorts of things, but I'm dressed as a wizard. Now, they never would have approached me if I wasn't dressed as a wizard, as you know, with your subway antics. Oh, yeah. That was one of my common things that, you know, someone says, well, let, let me see you do some magic. And I said, yeah. well, I wanted, I woke up this morning and said that I wanted to talk to you and here you yeah. are talking to me. So Exactly. Uh, exactly. I say the same thing. Children go up and say, can you do magic? It's like, well, I'm already doing it. I'm doing charm magic because you came up and talked to me. Children aren't that impressed by it, are they? <laughs> um. I find them to be a hard audience. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Some some are. It um you know, I I I no, I think find they're usually quite interested in it. It depends how linguistic they are. I guess like I try and include them in saying let them I go, Well, how do I learn how to do magic? And I say, Well, if you can convince your parents to buy you an ice cream without using the words ice cream or gestures mm. so they you have to make them think it's their idea to buy you an ice cream if you can think about how to do that then you've figured out how to be a magician <laughs> i love it <laughs> i forget i i had some girl, little girl that had a very uh it was like she like literally like asked for an ice cream like i i, I offered to grant her a yeah, yeah. And, she, and she asked for an ice cream and i was like wow that is a very small and humble wish and i just yeah. turned to the mom and i was like what do you say and the mom's like sure and i'm like wow look at that magic works yeah yeah there we go yeah 
so what was the moment though? Cause I mean, uh, I, I totally understand and resonate with having, mm-hmm. um, the interest in these topics and understanding that the role of a wizard invites people in. Mm-hmm. But for me, it was quite a buildup from thinking that to, uh, going, I'm going to put on robes and a pointy hat and walk around in public. And you also happen to be in a country that had an official wizard. That's right. Yeah. So I, I'm curious how, uh, that changed your path. So by the time I figured out the word for it, I'd already been doing it for a long time. And I guess this is why I, I'm not giving you a clear answer. So, um, so I had a partner at the time and I said, oh, because, you know, like I've been doing wizard stuff since about 2013 or something. She's like, no, that's that you've been doing it for way longer. And I said, what did you mean? It's like, go, go look through videos on YouTube of yourself then I found like a performance I'd completely forgotten about from 2012 with at a festival with my rock band at the time where the entire band is dressed as wizards, including myself. <laughs> completely forgot about it. And then an earlier one in like 2010 where I'd made this little um, video dressed up as sort of a proto-wizard um, called Mystical Music Monk. Um, and it just... So the the reason I probably can't quite answer that question is because there's just a thread going back to being a very young child and the thread just gets sort of thinner the further back I go but never completely disappears. But I, there was some moment about 2011 where I, I figured out the word wizard was the thing that I could encompass all my interests and the way I wanted to interact with the world through if that makes sense. And surely oh, it makes I, perfect sense. It's like, it's yeah. kind of almost like a magic bag that holds so many different things. Exactly. And the bag is also self-referential, which is, I think is the funny part is that started it's not that just way. Like, yeah. It's not just like a doctor, but it's like, I'm a doctor of telling people what doctors are. <laughs> that, yeah. Well, the, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, and then I realized, okay, um, well, if you want to try this out, so I'd already sort of tried it out with friends and that like, the first thing they do is completely accepted me as a wizard. <laughs> Much yep. to my surprise. <laughs> so it turns out that your life is more interesting if one of your friends is a wizard. And therefore, most people will go along with that. So after that, I'm like, well, I just happen to live in the very city where the most um, famous and oldest living wizard and the only officially nationally recognized wizard lives. I said, well, it would be silly not to go and talk to him if you're considering being a wizard. So I just simply walked up to the Wizard of New Zealand and said, hi, I'm Ari and I'm a young wizard. Now, um, people can't see, but if people look up uh, photos on me on Google or something, you might they might notice that I have a two foot long beard. And <laughs> so I already looked exactly the part. I walked up to him. He's like, OK, let's get started then. And then it just went from there. So I, so I became an apprentice to him because it seemed like the 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 best way to learn wizardry. Yeah, and, I was curious about that because I obviously took a, a renegade path and self initiated, and uh, yeah, you know, had had no one else. So and 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 wizards, I think, are a pretty ornery, uh, absolutely, <laughs> uh, uh, um, sort of stubborn bunch. And so I'm I'm curious, like, what did your apprenticeship entail, and how has that evolved? Um, getting out in public a lot, uh, several times a week, talking to, um, 
listening listening to the old wizard's ideas, um, helping him formulate there. Basically, he's full of opinions and ideas, and some of them are quite wonderful, and some are quite obscure and odd. And uh, you're basically listening to him like it's he's basically um, he started as the first sociology professor in New Zealand. Oh, in Australasia, in fact. Sorry, he was in Australia at the time. First sociology professor in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, a lot of his wizardry is an extension of his ideas about society. And then this kind of ongoing public performance that once it started, it, it never stopped for for over 50 years. Like like a role that he never has stepped out of ever, what not for one moment. So um, you're basically sort of watching what he does, watching how people interact with him coming up with my own ideas, lots of, tons of debates, like frequent debates. He's one of those people, um, I don't know if many people have had people in, like this in their life, where it's almost impossible to get a new idea in their head, but when you do, it feels like a great victory. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe like one of uh, anyone who's done maybe post-grad um, university or something, and there's that one professor who's most in tune with the subject, but they just don't take any shit. And if you say something that's not correct, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll dismiss it. But, um, but by the time you can actually get an idea in the head. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think that was a challenge. It's made me significantly better at, um, at explaining what I mean and, and getting things across to people. Cause you, you sort of had a built in sparring partner that you were working with to one, hear his ideas and, and debate those with yeah, him. But then also exactly um, you you weren't just getting to fart around with your own ideas in a vacuum. You had someone that was actively challenging them and provoking uh, them. Around, it's yeah, exactly. Like if you if you're gonna use a sparring partner analogy, it's like you've already got uh like someone who's been a champion. <laughs> and you're coming in as a newbie and you and you immediately have to start <laughs> sparring. Just get in the ring with Rocky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you just keep taking the beating until until su- such a time that you, you know, that you get a punch in or something like. But it's not, I mean, we say this because it's so, it is, he's a highly competitive guy. Um, but it's not, I'm not trying to say this in any negative sense. I think this type of interaction is highly undervalued in the modern world, the sense of, especially male competitiveness out out which from is one of the driving forces behind some of the most creative acts that humankind has ever done well i, I think th- there's also a lot of people that are are starving for mentorship it, it's it's very yeah. rare um, again this individualist thing it's very rare to find somebody who genuinely cares about your development and can mm. help guide you through some of these things and i i think you know, uh, the world is changing very fast. So the older yeah. generation lived through a different version of the world. It's not necessarily the same as if you're in a um, more stable society where each generation kind of confronts the same issues. But um, I think that's very rare to have these apprentice roles, especially now that people in their career are expected to, um, yeah. you know, change jobs every year and a half or whatever. Oh, yeah. Don't, yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And especially... Um Gee, young people, increasingly women, but also young men, it was just such a, a important part, this kind of apprenticeship concept. So I guess um, I would have done it anyway, but he probably saved me a couple of decades. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty valuable. What was, uh, what have like been the most challenging moments of your apprenticeship? Oh, 
guess it's just an ongoing, an sort of an ongoing sparring, and and interest. Probably, probably the self-imposed stuff. So I've given myself the task, and we'll see if I achieve it, of finishing a draft of this book explaining magic um, by the end of the year. So mm-hmm. if I can finish the draft, then I can spend the next... <laughs> I know it's going to take a long time to, to find a way to publish it. So, you know, maybe a year and a half, two years till it's published. But um, it's these kind of self-imposed things that I, I probably have found the hardest... That's yeah. interesting because I think I think that's um, I, I I I feel that too. It's often hard um, having the burden of your own expectations. Yeah, and I was curious how um, I guess yeah having having a mentor changes those because I think um, as a wizard when I work with clients and try and help people, I'm often able to sort of see something, notice a pattern, hear their way they're talking about a thing, and then reflect that back to them, and they're like, "Oh yes, my god, that, yeah, so I hadn't yeah. realized." And then when it's up to me on my own, I get stuck in these problems for so long. And I'm like, man, if I, <laughs> if this was my client, I could help them. But when it's like me yeah. pulling myself up by the bootstraps, it's it's easy to get tied up in knots. And you'll probably uh, find that I think a lot of people who fall into some sort of mentor or healer role or counseling role that part of the reason you're in the, that role is because it's quite hard for other people to counsel you. Mm-hmm. So you've had to work on yourself and think a lot about it and become your own counselor. But in becoming your own counselor, it's a lot easier for other for you to counsel other people. Well, and there's that idea of like the wounded healer, where That's right. if you uh, if if you're going to a therapist who's only ever been happy, they're going to have a pretty hard time. Um, connecting and understanding what you're going through. And Absolutely, so yeah. That's what I've tried to remind myself of when when I feel down and I'm like, how oh, am I even a real wizard? I'm upset right now. Uh, that those experiences are actually really vital. And oh, look, often- do, do some reading about wizards through history and you'll find they're actually <laughs> quite temperamental people. Well, that's I think that's what I also like about the archetype in terms of like fiction is that the wizard is often, uh, you know, bumbling or uh, slightly inept or, you know, they're not the all powerful most of the time. At least the most interesting wizards, I think, are the ones that are more human. Merlin does some very, very strange kind of selfish and weird things. Yeah. 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 I think after all. Yeah, I think the bumbling wizard might be a a little bit of a disrespectful kind of post-enlightenment take on the wizard role, but although I do have a soft spot for Rincewind. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of Rincewind uh, from the uh, Discworld series, yeah. and uh, I, I, yeah, he seems like he's sort of dragged kicking and screaming into the, the right place at the right <laughs> time to, to get it done. Um but then I also like uh, my, one of my favorites is Merlin from the cartoon, The Sword in the Stone. And okay. I like that he's uh, quite pompous and a yeah. little bit scatterbrained and, you know, has his heart is absolutely in the right place and is, is very helpful. But it's not the the thing that I think is so often lionized in culture of being the, you know, know-it-all secret agent who's outthinking everybody and has uh every every angle covered it's more the scrappy lucky saved by the skin of your teeth kind of thing well you gotta understand where the wizard terms comes from it's an old english word um meaning wise one Mm -hmm. and you think of what that meant that meant 
I, I see it as an evolution of the shaman role. If you look closer into what shamans have been through history or wise men, they are not necessarily the person who always has all the answers. The, the reason they often get into that role is that they are the person in your village who's already quite eccentric, who's allowed to go slightly mad because it's a space in which they can think out of the box. Now, maybe three quarters of what they say is not that relevant to other people or not understood or interesting but but can't be carried out. But every so often they come up with an idea that's just so different, so interesting, so believable, so entertaining, or so useful to their village that it's worth having this person um, around who has this unusual role. So I sort of see it more as this liminal space between uh, wise man, fool, madman, and yeah, and madman. So. It sounds like a great joke, like a wise man, a fool, a shaman walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I've always thought about that because I think, uh, again, there's this sort of um, correcting one bad stereotype and then swinging the other way into this um, reverence that smooths away a lot of the interesting aspects. And I've always wondered, like, what is it like to be in a village where you're like, oh, our our shaman is not good. <laughs> our shamans often often weren't good. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, our last shaman, he was great, but then his apprentice is not good. And you have like yeah, yeah, that's right. you know, he's just exactly. walking around trying to fuck woodland animals and you're like, yeah, I <laughs> I, I really think we we shouldn't have burned all our crops because he told us to. I think <laughs> yeah, we right, so. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we should listen to this guy anymore <laughs> there's also a, a kind of sports team um aspect to old shamans is that sometimes um so every village had a shaman but it's like sometimes the role of the shaman was so that you didn't all have to get in a battle and kill each other because mm-hmm. you just go you'd, you'd you'd have a shaman battle instead <laughs> so you would send the two guys out to have a magical battle and whoever whoever came back at least emotionally destroyed was the winner I guess. And I'm just picturing it like uh like you ever see that LARPing video where the kids running around and he's going yeah, yeah, lightning yeah. bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt. So it's like well, that, except they're they're covered in bear feces and throwing acorns at each other and yeah, like... perhaps. Perhaps. So <laughs> I mean so I think there's always going to be that aspect of competition and one-upmanship in the wizard role, even though it became a lot more British and refined. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that was one of the things that I decided early on was that I was like, well, I, I, I actually, I, I wasn't aware of the New Zealand wizards when I started this and I discovered mm. them, uh, or you, I should say, yeah. uh, after I became a wizard, which was very interesting of like, Hmm. Was that did did they exist in my own reality or did I switch to a new reality uh, where where wizards are are more prominent uh, hmm. prominent? But uh, I, I realized that I was like, okay, like there's going to be other wizards, and I can I can try and be a dick and be the only wizard, which is not going to be very successful. Or I can be cooperative and try and say like wizard council. But I've definitely had other people joke about like, oh, there's two wizards, like wizard duel. Oh uh, yeah, for um, sure. And and so, yeah, there's always an element to that. Well, I'm just I'm just curious, like when when we all manage to get together and have a big council meeting, like we're going to have to have some sort of duel. What do you think the competition would be? <laughs> it tends to be a it tends to be um, loud loud debates, in my experience. 
<laughs> You're like, I vote guitar solo competition. Well, I, ha- I have. Yeah, well, I've done guitar solo competitions with other wizards before, and so there we go. There's this footage of me doing that on uh, YouTube somewhere. Yeah, I've, I've seen the image of a bunch of you, uh, New Zealand folks, uh, walking down the street all playing guitar, and it's amazing. I think there's an. Well, I think guitar solos are literally magic, and I think. They're the kind of show-off magic that you'd expect from um, back in the old days. Because you like theater, theatrical, theater, and and acting and this sort of thing were, um, like, unremovable from magic back in the t- back in the day. Mm-hmm. So all theater was considered magic at before a certain time. So um, and this kind of like, yeah, I don't know. What the Wizard of New Zealand's very into this kind of having fun with the with the ego this kind of posturing ego thing which is is quite fun for an audience the like like the pompousness of a character sort of idea. P- playing playing at pompousness yeah yeah and and playing at um yeah the, the kind of the kind of battling ego so like the ego has got a very bad term and i think this gets back to what you suggested with um self-help gurus i think if there's one thing that frustrates me about self-help gurus, it's that they try and help people by making them shed large parts of what it means to be a human in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and a good way to assess whether a self-help guru is um, a crappy one or not is to look at them and go, do I actually want to be like that person? And if that person's dressed all in white, has no passion has a completely dispassionate voice um, and can't hold an ordinary conversation, then it's like everything has to be mystical and very calm. And I have, you know, and anyone who states that they have no ego, they're using their ego to say that. It's like standing in front of a <laughs> billboard that says their name in 20 foot letters with a picture I of their face. I am so humble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, no, my favorite. Uh, you don't get that with shamans and you don't get that with wizards. And I think it's 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 slightly dangerous bullshit to detach. No, the ego is something you need. All good leaders have an ego. All musicians, all artists, all art and music is done from the ego. And what I mean is the ego is the self part of one. This is what related to what Freud meant by it. It's the I, I mean, I in Latin. It's that self of you that has the willpower, that makes the decision. You need an ego to have responsibility. I think the problem in today's world is not that people are too egotistical. I think it's that people's egos are not um, strong. Someone with a strong ego will not easily be insulted because they'll have a fairly um, good impression of themselves. So if it's someone will only insult you if they say something that either worries you that it might be true or worries you because you think other people might be convinced that it might be true. But mm-hmm. if someone says something that's so off, then it, it, it's, it, shouldn't, it just shouldn't offend you. So it's this, um, so a lot, of, a lot of what the Wizard of New Zealand does is this kind of um, ego play playful game involving egos and um it's really to point this out and uh so one of my favorite things is he gets up and he he does these big long rants about um 
the state of the world and the battle of the sexes and and uh, politics. Probably my most favorite favorite one is the Inside Out Universe and the South South being up and North. Yes, being I have. Up. I have yeah. his his map. Mm. Uh, that has the, the, the Wayne, the Wizard of yeah. uh, Richmond, Virginia, gave it to me. But yeah, yeah. that has the uh, the South Pole on top. Now he goes on for a while as if he's a street preacher, and then at a certain point he goes, "By the way, this is all bullshit." But wizards have the best bullshit, and then he continues. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so not only is this all bullshit, but everything you've been taught is bullshit too, and my bullshit's better, and so there, and then he continues on, which is, I think, quite a fun challenge. So these kind of like, um, yeah, this, this sort of using posturing, it's almost like using ego play in order to show what being humble actually means or... It's like exaggeration, the the pantomime of it. If you think of ego as a as a character, then you have the people who are the method actors of the world who are, mm. you know, hurting themselves and gnashing their teeth, being so convinced that they are this character. And yeah. then you have the opposite side of like you you read about um the traditional religions of India and places where the people who have become enlightened, there's one description that it's like um it's like a burnt string. So it still looks like a string, but when you blow it, it's just ash. There's nothing there. And this idea of people who are just blank, they're not willing to play a character. They, they've completely detached from that. And I think the most fun character is like when you watch a movie with Nicolas Cage in it and you can tell that he yeah, exactly. knows this character's crazy. Why do we, He's playing why do we it like up. He's so having much? fun. Yeah. yeah, like a great we are, villain. We are attracted to these people for a reason. Now, chewing the scenery, having fun, yeah. No, no, he's a perfect example because when you, you actually see him in interviews, he's he's not very serious and he seems relatively humble. He seems like a reasonable person. Um, his ego seems quite intact. He knows his job is to have out, is to steal the scene in movies and have outrageous freakouts, and he's just embraced that, and that's his thing. Yeah, no, I think yeah. I think I think that's it exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting challenge, and uh, it's it's you hit the nail on the head earlier with just the the more that someone is making their living preaching the values of egolessness, that's another trap that gets you into uh, having quite an ego about it. And oh yeah, I think the wizard thing is so intriguing to me because it's just ultimately self-reflexive and self-referential and it's it's sort of like a bugs bunny moment where you've created this character and while everyone's looking at the character you tap them on the shoulder and you're like ah it's pretty interesting huh and they look and they realize that you're standing next to them watching the show too well let me frame it yeah that's right it's the self-watching but let me frame it in a different way um what is a like consider like a great rock musician like what what are they really doing or in fact any musician they are taking an emotional risk <clears throat> on on behalf of you so that you can go along vicariously with the journey. That's what a great musical performance is. Mm. If there's no sign of emotional risk, they're putting themselves they're getting up on stage and doing something that overcoming nerves and becoming the best the best performances are ones where the musician gets in a trance and becomes so their self is so intertwined with the music that there's no they become the instrument they become the sound there's no and like that takes an enormous amount of bravery now that takes ego to produce you say i 
am the one filling the room with music, but so that everyone can go along with you. It's to share. It's a, it's a shared act. If you go up and they go, I will take from the audience, they will give unto me all the applause. That doesn't work. What works is going, I will be the channel, the vehicle by which the audience has a good time through, through my decision making. That works. And I tell you, it only works really well when the musician becomes a feedback loop with the audience and responds to them. If they're not invited into the performance, it doesn't work. The, the the image that's come into my mind is, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's the clip from, I think it's like the George Harrison tribute show. And yeah. it's Tom yes. Petty. And Beautiful. I forget who, it, who else is on stage, but it's a bunch of just, you know, A-list level musicians on stage. Yeah. And then Prince comes out to do the guitar solo. And it's pure ego in one sense because he's exactly. fucking Prince and he's a god on the stage and he is just yeah. destroying this guitar solo but he's also just this conduit of energy and it's just flowing right through him and there's no um there's Absolutely. no filters now um george harrison's son danny harrison was performing there and you can see his face as prince <laughs> is playing this guitar solo and it's just pure amazement and enjoyment that's yeah that's it and then Prince does all these things. He does the most amazing job. It's pure one-upmanship. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's a vehicle. It's like, you're going to give me the main solo. I'm going to take you somewhere you haven't been with it. Somewhere that um, it's, it's, it's simultaneously his ego and out of respect for the song. And it's the most, it's the most respectful thing he could have possibly done in a George Harrison. If you look, in a George Harrison show is do his best job to be an incredible performer. Now, the best thing about it is right at the end, he throws his guitar in the air and it never comes back down. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then he gives this kind of cheeky smile and walks away. It's like, yeah. where did the guitar go? <laughs> it just disappeared. He just like demanifests the guitar at the, at the end. Zap, gone. Ooh, demanifest. That's a phrase that I haven't heard. Yeah. I like that. Well, I'm going to flip that and and speak about manifesting. Um, 21st Hmm. century wizardry is a a term that I use a lot. And I think if we if we think about the 21st century, we're, you know, just scratching the surface right now. What do you think? um, What role do you think wizardry needs to play? And how would you like to see it evolve as uh, there become more of us that are welcome to the fold? Yeah, so. The the wizards the wizard can have all sorts of unusual methods like Prince playing guitar solo or whatever, but it's got to be ultimately some benefit to his village. I find so this mm. positivity, and I I would say this by um, explaining what the difference between a wizard and a warlock is, because Ooh, I, okay, I, I always love a good uh, distinction because some of these terms get so nebulous and people are like, are you are, what makes you not a mage? And I'm like, I don't know, man, because wizards are cooler. <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, we could get into any of these words, but uh, wizard and warlock are quite a useful dichotomy because they are both um, old English words. Mm-hmm. So, um, wizard, the the word, first term is wise, and then arda means like someone who does wisdom in a sense, like mm-hmm. a wise one, um, which implies wisdom being um, applied knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so using knowledge to to achieve something in the world or it's not it's not just knowing how something works you don't necessarily have to know how it works you have to know 
when it is right to do that thing. It's sort of um, it's sort of knowledge plus morality, I guess. The opposite is a warlock. The word var uh, means um, knowledge, and it comes from the same. If anyone speaks German, there's a word called Wahrheit, which means the truth. It's the same term var. So var is um, truth or an oath, and loka, varloka, it means an oath breaker. That's where we get the term warlock from. Now, got to, underst- to understand that fully, you got to understand what an oath was to people in the past. And a good way, I just came across this um, YouTube video discussing debt. I think it's some, something like the history of debt for the last 5,000 years. Now, they said um, mo- for most of human history, we, sh- we traded promises rather than actual money. So it's like, I want your car. So you give me your car, and when you need something of equal value from me, you come and get it from me. So that's what the that's it's that kind of thing that's an oath. It's not just a broken promise. It's actually almost no, because it's like you're part of a community, and so your reputation and all of these things uh, yeah. are are your value yeah. in this world. And if if you yeah. break your word, it's not like you're just going to go anonymously do business with other people and write more bad yeah. checks. It's like Nah, there's only there's only like a hundred of us in the area, so yeah, you're yeah. fucked now. Like everyone knows you're a little shit. Exactly. Yeah, there's that, and it's also it took the oaths took the place of currency. Mm-hmm. Oaths took the place of laws. Do I mean so? Oaths were very important. So, like one you'll find um, very very common throughout Western history and uh, Middle East history and all sorts of things is the the oath of. Um, of hospitality so if someone turns up um you need to if someone turns up even even sometimes if they're if there's someone you're not at war with and they turn up with no implication of violence whether you like them or not whether they are someone who's offended you or not you actually have to give them a place to stay and some food and vice versa I like that rule yeah and this is uh this is what allowed people to, and that was sacred the couch surfers creed yeah. So like when you get that, yeah, exactly. So when you get that like red wedding scene in um, Game of Thrones, that mm. that came from actual, um, you know, that was inspired by real events. But that's a warlock move. It's like they turned up um, expecting hospitality, and you turn up at you know to have a wedding, and then you pull the knives with out. your daughter, and then you kill them. Like that's the most that's the high that's full warlock. So like yeah, warlocks are those people. So a wizard is the opposite of a warlock. Um, warlocks are people who charm and everything for their own ends. So, like you know, a lot of, when people the the idea of a corrupt politician or a gangster or something that's the kind of warlock role. Sometimes all of the above. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I think I you know I don't want to fall off into the politics realm, but I think that's one of the things that is important to be aware of is that magic isn't just uh, light and goodwill and all of these positive things. There's plenty of magic that is manipulative and deceptive, Absolutely. and um, you know there is I think 
the wizardry that we like uh, is is knowing that we're playing a game and these are the rules. And look, I can point out the rules. I can bend some of them. Yeah. Like, isn't this fun to be aware that we're in a game? But then there's another strategy, which is fuck your rules and just breaking them. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly destructive act because that's the foundational trust that every other structure is built off of when you destroy that it can be incredibly damaging and it's a lot harder to repair and rebuild than it is to break absolutely so it's i think the wizard for that reason should do majority of their magic in public Mm. so that people can hold them up for it if they can be judged and if unless unless they're you know charging a sigil chaos magic style which is is probably not good idea to do that in public well why not have you tried it oh i'm making i'm making a masturbation joke oh sorry okay <laughs> okay well yeah don't masturbate in public but 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 have you tried doing a um you know like like some take some form of it this is why i'm not so into the term occult either because it means hidden so it t- tends to imply that one that there's certain knowledge that only initiates are allowed to receive whereas i think if you've got something good you should share it to um this idea that yeah, that magic is something we do in a hidden hole with secret costumes amongst the these special people. No, I think the most interesting, powerful magic is a lot more mundane and happens out in the world all the time. Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that is, um, you know, my own mission statement is is trying to share uh, my own experience with these things because I was reading lots of books that made it sound like so impressive and crazy and then I'm like waiting yeah. for roommates to leave so I can chant without being embarrassed in my apartment oh well, there you and, go should just and, aunt anyway and see what they do they might like it yeah I mean I did I you know my, my roommate saw me regularly going into the garage wearing a, a bathroom and carrying a knife so like yeah, yeah. You know, there's <laughs> it, I, I've definitely crossed that threshold plenty of times but I think uh, that's the thing that I'm trying to reassure people of is that one it's gonna feel kind of silly and I yeah. think a lot of people have the movie idea of what magic looks like and then most um, occult sources really tend to kind of hide behind um, those assumptions they're like i'm not going to go into detail about what my ritual looks like but you know i'll let you imagine it and that's why i think you see a lot more photos on the internet of people's altars and the crystals and the stuff that you can buy yeah because it's actually you know when you're when you're doing a ritual for yourself it's not as visual most of the time or it doesn't look as impressive and people don't want to no you gotta understand what they're trying to do that is their chance spell that the, yeah. the photo is their chance spell it's like the actual what they did in the room isn't very important. The picture they put on social media is their chance bell, and it often works for them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's that which emanates out into the world. And the bigger it emanates out into the world, the bigger the spell often. Speaking of charm spells, uh, let's let's bring this uh, this little ritual ship into, into the dock, and I would love yeah. your words of wisdom on what is a spell that our listeners at home can do to charm themselves and others and make their world a more magical place well okay let's let's go positive oh yeah yeah Yeah. so and a lot of people um we're gonna do a a wizard prayer and okay and like so some people don't like the word prayer but um i think they'll like this one so a lot of people grew up um various religions and things and i think there's two kinds of prayer there's the Santa Claus type, where you go, Santa Claus or God, please deliver me 
uh, a solid gold statue of myself and look, look at my uh, Amazon wish list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like or, 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 or a Ferrari that and a road I can drive at 600 miles per hour. And uh, no, no, the more adult prayer is this. Please, whatever powers that be, may I be so changed that I can receive what I need. Hmm. I like that. Thank you, Ari. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Cool. Thanks, Devin. For more of Ari's wizardry, you can read his book in progress at pragmaticmagicalthinking.blogspot.com or you can listen to some of his sonic spells, and by that I mean music, at arifreeman.bandcamp.com. Or you can even check out our collaboration at personisasleep.com, which is a compilation album that I created earlier this year, or last year I should say, uh, to aid astral travel, to which Ari contributed a couple of really stellar, really cool, really interesting tracks. With that being said, it's a weird year, folks. I know it's just started. I know it feels like 2020 was a a marathon that we ran like a sprint and we thought it would never end. And we were really hoping that we could get back to something called normal. And I just, I got to break it to you. Normal's not around the corner. Normal's in the rear view mirror and fading fast. And things are just going to keep getting weirder. But thankfully, that's why we have wizards. To add some levity to the insanity, and to help us play in the paradoxes that we find ourselves in, to help us shrug at the weight of all we can't know, and to embrace all the things that help us go with the flow. So to you and yours, I wish you a happy new year. I'll be here and there, now and forever, believing in you and all the magic that you do. (laughs) 